This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Insomnia. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Greek philosopher Plato famously denounced sleep in his last dialogue, The Laws. He said, asleep, man is useless. He may as well be dead. He wasn't alone in his thinking either. The middle of the night was also considered a time of creativity and enlightenment for others such as romantic poets like William Blake. For that reason, insomnia is sometimes considered more of a modern problem, one that was uncommon and temporary in nature until more recent history. Some of the earliest treatments include alcohol and opium, which has long been known for their sleep-inducing effects. In the 1800s, the two products were combined and sold as laudanum, a panacea to treat a variety of ailments, including insomnia. It worked fairly well, but unfortunately, it also caused addiction, respiratory depression, and sometimes even death. Then, chloral hydrate became popular, another addictive sedative used for sleep in the mid-19th century. And then barbiturates were developed in the 20th century, and they continued to be popular until the 1960s. But insomnia doesn't just affect a person's overnight sleep. It also impacts a person's daytime function, such as concentration, mood, and overall well-being. The National Institute of Health estimates 30% of adults have periodic insomnia and 10% of adults have chronic insomnia. In healthcare settings, this can be as high as 50%. So to discuss this very common nighttime nuisance and what we can do about it, I've invited two of Ohio State University's sleep experts. Dr. Lawrence Chan is a board-certified psychiatrist and sleep medicine physician, and Dr. Helena Rimpala is a clinical psychologist who specializes in healthy sleep. Lawrence, Helena, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for Thanks. having us. 
Lawrence, uh, are most cases in insomnia primary or secondary to some other medical condition? So we frequently see both. Uh, most patients that come to our clinic um, do have other comorbid uh, medical conditions and diagnoses that uh, certainly would uh, be associated with insomnia or maybe contributing as well. Um, it's often very difficult to distinguish between primary and secondary uh, insomnia. Uh, so really the field has shifted away from focusing on that label uh, as opposed to just practically looking to see what can help the patient. Mm -hmm. And Helena, how effective are behavioral therapies at treating insomnia? They're fairly effective. Uh, you know, studies show us that they are as effective as, as 70 to 80 percent. So great. these are very, very high numbers. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thanks, Helena. Before we get started with today's program, I wanted to let you know that you can send us any questions or suggestions using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. You can find all 120 of our programs on our website at ccme.osu.edu or listen to the audio-only version via podcast by searching for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. After the program, don't forget to claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points for watching. Now let's get started. Lawrence? All right. So, um... So these are our learning objectives today. Uh, we hope to define and describe uh, insomnia disorder and um, um, illustrate kind of how patients present uh, and the symptoms that uh, they can come in with. Um, we hope to uh, review behavioral interventions, which is our first line intervention uh, and treatment for insomnia. And then lastly, uh, discuss um, pharmacological options uh, that we can also consider. Uh, to add, I don't have any financial disclosures uh, to state today. Uh, so insomnia disorder, as, dis as described and, uh, and defined by the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, uh, uh, presents with um, uh, the following symptoms, or at least one of the following symptoms. Uh, and it also describes how patients uh, typically present to the clinic with uh, insomnia. So uh, uh, difficulty initiating sleep is a very common uh, complaint uh, where patients will report um, difficulty, uh, you know, I can't get to sleep, it takes forever to fall asleep or I never get to sleep at all. Uh, um, we also can um, discover this uh, when we get their sleep history, um, um, getting timing about when they fall asleep and how long it takes them to fall asleep. Um, and increasingly, consumer wearables and consumer devices such as Fitbits and um, Apple Watches um, also give us additional information about um, patient's sleep habits um, uh, and their sleep patterns. Uh, difficulty maintaining sleep uh, is another common complaint that's, uh, that, that, uh, that patients bring to clinic. Um, that's reported as, you know, it's hard to sleep throughout the night. Um, I have a lot of awakenings. Uh, sometimes it's hard to fall back asleep. Uh, other times it's, it's easier to fall back asleep. And for some folks, they can't go back to sleep at all. Uh, which is described as this waking up earlier than des desired. Uh, for these folks, they're struggling with um, getting enough sleep in their eyes uh, and, um, and they have to start the day a lot earlier, um, which is um, often uh, distressing for them. Uh, for, for children, uh, this can present as resistance to going to bed on an appropriate schedule, um, or uh, they have a lot of difficulty sleeping without significant amounts of uh, parent or caregiver intervention uh, that uh, is stressing the family. So 
previously described, uh, we're not only looking at uh, nighttime symptoms, but also how this affects uh, the patient during the day. Um, uh, and this can present as, as this listed here. Um, so patients can complain of fatigue, um, malaise, tiredness uh, during the day, uh, impacts on their attention, concentration, uh, or memory. Uh, which uh, in hand affects their social and family functioning, uh, affects, affecting their uh, ability to perform well uh, at work or in school. Uh, patients can describe uh, mood disturbances, feeling down, frustrated, um, irritable. Uh, and because they're not sleeping well at night and, and at times sleeping not much, uh, they can also describe a lot of daytime sleepiness as well. For children, this can present as behavioral problems, um, a lot of acting out or oppositional behaviors, uh, um, reduced motivation, um, hard to get things done during the day, hard to have initiative to uh, be real um, productive. Uh, uh, patients can also report um, proneness for errors and accidents, being absent-minded, uh, um, being forgetful. Uh, and uh, patients will also um, just generally describe concerns or dissatisfaction with their sleep quality. Um, important exclusion uh, criteria would be uh, that it's not explained by inadequate opportunity or inadequate circumstances to sleep. Uh, here we're thinking that um, the environment or um, psychosocial circumstances are really playing a big role. Uh, um, for instance, if um, work and family responsibilities do not allow enough time to get enough sleep, um, or if uh, the sleep environment is, is, is suboptimal where there's no safe place to sleep or uh, um, uh, safe safe environment. Um, this uh, makes us think, think of things like insufficient sleep syndrome and, uh, and not necessarily uh, an insomnia disorder. So symptoms should occur at least three times a week to meet criteria. And uh, at current, we have uh, basically two subtypes, um, chronic and short-term insomnia. Um, previously, in previous editions of the um, International Classification, Classification of Sleep Disorders, there were a number of other subtypes, such as psychophysiologic insomnia, um, paradoxical insomnia, or idiopathic insomnia. Um, that has been sh phased out in the new edition um, because um, patients generally don't cleanly fit into those subtypes. Um, so they've kind of simplified it, and uh, now it's to uh, simplify to basically time-based um, distinction. Um, chronic being at least three months in duration and short-term being less than three months. So insomnia is uh, obviously quite common, um, as mentioned before, prevalence ranging up to 50% of, uh, of, uh, of patients. Um, and there are associated risk factors, such as um, older age, previous episodes of insomnia, and uh, a family history of insomnia. Uh, and it's associated with a wide range of uh, disorders, medical conditions, and, and, and psychiatric uh, diagnoses. In terms of psychiatric disorders, uh, uh, depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance abuse, um, uh, uh, sleep disturbance is actually part of the diagnostic criteria for depression, so that just speaks to how, how common it is. Um, uh, anxiety, ruminations, um, patients reporting you know, difficulty shutting off their mind uh, is a very common presentation. Uh, PTSD is associated with um, trauma-related nightmares, which can uh, disturb sleep, and uh, substance abuse. So most 
list of uh, uh, substances that are um, uh, that are abused um, do have effects on sleep architecture, including stimulants, uh, opiate medications, uh, and um, sedatives as well. Uh, uh, medical conditions. So a wide range of medical conditions have been, um, again, connected to uh, insomnia, um, pulmonary conditions, hypertension, uh, diabetes, um, cancer, chronic pain. Um, some of these have uh, more obvious sort of mechanisms, such as chronic pain, where uh, the pain at night uh, causes awakenings, um, uh, maybe in the case of heart failure, um, uh, shortness of breath when lying, when lying down, uh, obviously can affect uh, a, a patient's ability to sleep as well. Substances and medications. Um, so this is also a uh, big contributing factor. Um, so stimulants such as caffeine, coffee, uh, ADHD medications, um, a lot of appetite uh, suppressants um, that are newly coming onto the market are, are stimulant-based. Um, these are all known to uh, um, uh, cause wakefulness, which in turn um, uh, negatively affects sleep. Um, antidepressants um, really across the board have been associated with um, sleepiness, but also um, disrupting sleep um, architecture, uh, mainly uh, suppressing uh, REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Beta blockers are maybe not as commonly uh, thought of, but uh, um, those are also associated with uh, sleep disruption. Uh, this is thought to be uh, related to um, effects on the pineal gland, uh, which does have some um, beta sympathetic um, receptors uh, on it. Uh, um, uh, certain the, the lipophilic uh, beta blockers are, are more strongly associated uh, due to um, some patches through the um, blood-brain barrier. Uh, steroid medications uh, or steroids in general uh, can uh, disrupt sleep. Uh, mechanism is not entirely clearly known, um, thought to affect uh, uh, some melatonin um, uh, production, um, but also uh, affect the GABA system and um, the N, uh, MDA uh, system with glutamate. And uh, as previously mentioned, alcohol and tobacco. Uh, tobacco um, with nicotine being a stimulant, uh, that uh, can affect sleep quality. Uh, and alcohol is actually a sedative. However, because we metabolize it quite quickly, um, it doesn't last through the night. So although there's some reports that it can uh, help with sleep onset, it does lead to um, further sleep disruption and also changes to the sleep architecture as well. Detrimental changes, I would say. Um, uh, and of course, uh, sleep disorders are something to think about in the differential as well. Um, that's our primary role in, in, in sleep medicine clinic is to roll out other conditions that, uh, that also can uh, cause um, these sleep complaints. Uh, so sleep apnea is uh, probably our most common thing that we're dealing with, uh, which is a repetitive uh, closure or collapse of the upper airway. Uh, um, as you'd imagine, that would uh, classically cause um, frag sleep fragmentation uh, as, as patients drift off to sleep and have of, um, these uh, respiratory episodes um, that is distressing to the body, causing wakefulness to uh, to start breathing again. Restless legs uh, and uh, and periodic limb movements of sleep um, are also known to be disruptive. Restless legs tends to happen before you actually fall asleep, so more associated with sleep onset difficulties. Um, whereas the periodic limb movements, once you are asleep, can be disruptive and cause um, awakenings. Then. And circadian rhythm uh, sleep-wake disorders are also uh, something to consider, uh, and that's where sleep diaries and getting a good sleep history can elucidate that, uh, where, uh, where if you have shifts in the sleep uh, schedule, that can present as sleep-onset difficulties, for instance, in delayed sleep phase. Uh, um, uh, patients with that uh, have a hard time falling asleep uh, at, the, um, at the desired time, uh, whereas in advanced um, 
uh, sleep phase. Uh, they fall asleep uh, earlier, but they wake up too early. So um, that's an important thing to uh, tease out as well. So in terms of our assessment, um, it starts with the uh, as thorough as we can sleep history, um, outlining um, uh, the sleep schedule, um, any associated symptoms such as sleep apnea, restless legs, uh, any um, unusual movements that uh, happen at night, um, reviewing medical conditions, uh, medications, other substances that can be impacting sleep. Uh, to get a better uh, and clearer view of their sleep schedule, the sleep diary and actigraphy can be help helpful. Um, sleep diary is one that they uh, that they report themselves in terms of graphing their um, sleep uh, um, patterns, um, uh, which we have some examples coming um, ahead. Uh, actigraphy is a watch-based device that um, uh, approximates sleep based on movement. Uh, um, questionnaires such as the um, insomnia severity index can be also helpful uh, to assess um, uh, how severe and how impacting their um, insomnia is. Uh, and sleep studies uh, can be considered, um, particularly the role there is if there's another suspected sleep disorder, um, namely sleep apnea, um, sometimes periodic leg movements of sleep. Um, if that is not of high suspicion, then sleep studies aren't, uh, uh, aren't that helpful and aren't indicated in just, uh, I guess, primary or simple insomnia. Looking at uh, treatments, um, uh, behavioral therapies are clearly first line, uh, as indicated by the, um, the current guidelines from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, whereas pharmacological treatments, um, we have some options, but most of the uh, recommendations and guidelines are weak uh, uh, suggestions. Um, so we do rely on the behavioral therapies um, as our mainstay of treatment. And we have Dr. Rampala here who will give us some insights into that. Thank you so much, Lawrence. Uh, so let's move the slide here a little bit. Here we go. Uh, I wanted to illustrate cognitive behavioral therapy and brief behavioral therapy for insomnia for you today using a clinical example. We're going to really use all the knowledge that uh, Dr. Chen just presented for us and we will put it into practice. Um, CBTI and BBTI are very close cousins. BBTI is shorter and includes a little more of an outside of session contacts with the patients. So phone calls or messages. Um, I decided to illustrate uh, those um, approaches using a clinical case example. I created a generic patient for us. And I made her, this will be a female, um, over 17 year old, and I made her um, more on the elderly side to illustrate the second part of my goal for today, which is to make sure that we all realize that one size does not fit all. And what I mean by this is that um, CBTI, BBTI, they are considered to be fairly straightforward, simple, easy interventions, and very effective. Uh, like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, the studies show that we can reach up to 80% effectiveness. This is huge for behavioral interventions, for any type of interventions actually. But to reach this effectiveness, we have to tailor the approaches to the individual patient's characteristics. The good news is that both CBTI and BBTI and any really behavioral interventions are easy to do it. They're amenable. To, to changes. Uh, so they really do allow us to deliver a targeted individualized care. So without further ado, 
Let me introduce you to our patient. Today it's going to be Ms. Luna Soleil. Uh, like, like I said, she's over 70 year old. Uh, let's make her 75 today. Uh, she's Caucasian, uh, petite. Uh, she's a widow, uh, retired, so not much of a schedule. Uh, and she's cisgender. She's never been a great sleeper. That's the story of her life. But the last two years, she tells us she just cannot sleep at all. Uh, so that's what she's coming with. And she's being uh, referred to us by the sleep medicine division. So she had already met with the good doctors over there that ruled out restless leg syndrome. And I'm glad because there's not much that behavioral intervention can do for restless leg syndrome. She also does not have obstructive sleep apnea, which is very important. Mm, the behavioral, behavioral interventions for uh, insomnia uh, in big part rely on sleep restriction, in other words, on sleep deprivation. And, um, you know, depriving a person with undiagnosed and untreated obstructive sleep apnea, depriving them of sleep, may be truly iatrogenic. She's postmenopausal, so we don't have much of hormonal changes, so that will be a little easier for us. And she does not have a history of bipolar disorder, nor any history of uh, manic episodes. Again, uh, sleep deprivation can trigger a manic episode. Uh, she also does not happen to have ADHD. And as uh, we saw in Dr. Chen's presentation, uh, ADHD medication uh, are, you know, these are stimulants, so obviously they're not particularly sleep uh, uh, friendly. Uh, but also for patients with insomnia and comorbid ADHD, our behavioral interventions will focus on sleep hygiene much more than in other patients. So we have the patient. Now let's look at the model that we're going to use to conceptualize uh, her treatment. Uh, this is a cognitive behavioral model of insomnia. Uh, one of our older models, very well researched and uh, as you can see, um, quite busy. There's lots of arrows and they're going in all directions. Uh, that's not the only model of insomnia, but this is the one that we will choose uh, to work from today. Um, what do we have in this model? Well, we have something like dysfunctional cognitions. So these are the beliefs that the patients have about their sleep. For example, if I do not sleep for eight hours a night, I will develop dementia. This is a very common uh, cognition that uh, my elder, elderly patients will um, voice. And it's a wrong, uh, it's a dysfunctional thought, it makes them anxious, but it's also in inaccurate. Uh, the other piece here, we have maladaptive habits. Well, that would be, for example, going to bed at odd hours, reading in bed for, you know, till wee hours of the morning, uh, falling asleep with a TV. Um, the maladaptive habits are something to uh, to evalu evaluate very closely with each patient what is adaptive, what's maladaptive. But I think you, you're getting a little bit of a picture here. Physiological arousal, another uh, component that is very important, and that is basically the person's reactivity in general to life events. Uh, how quickly do they get um, excited, how excitable they are, but also how um, disturbed physiologically they get, how scared, how anxious they get when it comes to sleep. Um, anxiety and sleep do not mix very well, as we all know. 
And then uh, the fourth component is emotional consequences. These are emotional consequences of not sleeping. So this is, these are the four components that we'll be looking at when we uh, will perform our uh, intake evaluation of uh, Mrs. Soleil. So we're meeting with her and she is telling us things and we are immediately starting categorizing what she's saying into our four components. Uh, we're just going to start with physio physiological arousal and emotional consequences and these are little excerpts from what she's telling us. Well, first of all, she's coming with tears in her eyes. So that's already tell you she is physiologically aroused uh, even when she's supposed to talk about uh, how difficult it is for her to sleep. She tells you a story of a life that revolves around the pursuit of sleep. Um, she assures you with pride that despite being exhausted, she never ever takes naps and almost never drinks caffeine. And when you hear those, you know, overgeneralized, all or nothing statements that tells you how much effort uh, the person is putting into maintaining uh, what they believe are appropriate habits for insomnia, which tells you how much emotionally involved, invested they are in it. And let's look also at the emotional consequences related to her social life. Well, her brother is upset, her friends are upset because she's no longer participating in evening social gatherings. Why? Well, because she doesn't want to get too excited or too tired because she is basically, her life revolves around making sure that she falls asleep on time. All right, so we met our patient, we have the model, we have her sleep narrative. Oh, I forgot about habits and maladaptive beliefs. Very important components. Remember, we had four of them. Well, let's look at that. Well, her life really does revolve around uh, pursuit of sleep because she will turn off the TV at nine. In the evening, she's careful not to get too scared, too agitated. She listens to music. She sometimes goes for a walk. She has a light supper. Occasionally, she has a small glass of wine. Well, that's a little red flag for us, but she says occasionally, all right, good. She goes to bed religiously at 10 p.m. There's nothing that will keep her from getting to bed at 10. No Christmas party, no birthday parties. She will be in bed and she tries to fall asleep. Every time you hear this, you know, okay, that's probably not a good idea. The more we try to fall asleep, the less likely the sleep will come. It takes her up to an hour to fall asleep, uh, sometimes a little less. She wakes up uh, three to four times a night. She tosses, she turns for a long time. She eventually falls asleep or not. So there are some sleepless nights here. She gets out of bed for the day around seven or 8 a.m. And here you are very concerned because if she goes to bed at 10 and gets up at eight, that's 10 hours in bed. It's very unlikely that after 70 uh, years of age, she actually can sleep for that long. So we already are concerned that she's spending too much time in bed. Her room is dark and cool. Good for Mrs. Luna Soleil. That's a very good recommendation. Okay, how we're going to approach it. We have our four components. We met our patient and we have three steps that we need to deliver in about, um, six to 12 sessions. If we go with CBTI, that will take us about 12 sessions. If we go with BBTI, that will take us less. But on average, the good, the good um, news is that on average, at least in our clinic, it takes us about four. 
but we're always ready to go with you know the prescribed 10 sessions that are included in the manuals but because one size does not fit all sometimes it goes faster sometimes it, it goes slower so the very important first step is education we need to spend entire session and as a psychologist we are spoiled we have our 55 minutes and we guard them you know closely uh, we are spoiled and we can actually deliver a lot of information in that time we need to educate our patient about the mechanisms of sleep about uh, the uh, circadian rhythm about uh, exposure to light and when the exposure to light uh, activates uh, the alerting signal and also how the sleep uh, drive accumulates as we are awake. We need to educate it about the total sleep time and make her aware that she will sleep less and less as she gets older uh, because that's the change that occurs in, uh, as, we, as, we, as we age and really the cutoff for research is 65. For some reason, we start seeing these changes in total sleep time after um, that person turns 65. We also will educate her that she will have to expect more uh, wake up after sleep onset moments, uh, the WASA that Dr. Chan uh, mentioned before. Um, and there's actually a formula we can use. If she woke up, uh, let's say two times when she was in her 40s, she will wake up two times, probably 2.7. So at least four or five times in her 70s and 80s. We also will educate her about sleep latency, that she will be sleepier earlier than in her uh, earlier ages, uh, earlier age, and uh, that she probably will not be sleeping as deep uh, because she may already, she might have already lost some of the capacity for deep sleep, for slow wave sleep. So that's the first step, and it's also your first session. Um, you're finishing your first session with delivering or teaching the patient how to fill out a sleep diary, but you refrain from making any recommendations. The recommendations will come with the second step after we review the sleep diary. Uh, basically, our second step is, a, is introducing a sleep restriction. Now, the sleep restriction will have one goal and one goal only, and it will be to reach sleep efficiency of, of 80%. Sleep efficiency is the ratio of how long we sleep to how long we spend in bed. So basically, learning theory tells us that if we sleep for at least 80% of the time we're in bed, we are in good shape because our brain perceives bed and horizontal po position as a cue to fall asleep. So that's something very, very important. This will be a tremendous challenge to her lifestyle and it is a challenge to most of our patients' lifestyle. And the third step that will be occurring throughout all our sessions will have to do with stimulus control, with basically uh, designing our patients' uh, environment to cue them for uh, sleep when the time comes. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in the last few years, at, le at least since 2017, uh, we started including circadian rhythm counseling in the CBTI. At this point, it is an add-on, but it turns out to be a very important add-on, and the goal of it is to make sure that the patient realizes 
that sleep is just one of the mechanisms in many mechanisms that are governed by the circadian rhythm that responds to our exposure to light. So this is something that is coming. Uh, Mrs. Luna Saleh um, will be involved in it just a little bit, but we will not focus on it. This is an example of a sleep diary. It's one of my preferred one, but there's plenty of them on the web uh, and in many manuals. Uh, I like this one because it allows me to uh, immediately see uh, various maladaptive habits. Uh, so in the rows, you have the days. There should be two weeks of them. Everything we do in sleep interventions uh, is in two-week period. I shortened it in our generic patient just for the sake of, of uh, our discussion today. So in the rows, we have the days. In the columns, we have the hours. Difficulty for patient comes uh, because our chart starts at noon. So the night is actually in the middle of the, of the chart here. So we start at noon and we finish at 11 a.m. So this is what Mrs. Luna Saleh brought us after the uh, entire hour spent on educating her about sleep, about uh, how long to expect of sleep. And um, as we can see, there is quite a bit of uh, problems in here. First of all, we're going to calculate her total sleep time and we do it in front of the patient with the patient. So she sleeps about 4.3 hours a night, not much. Her sleep efficiency is 42%. So this is going to be, you know, our main um, target initially. Uh, we don't know exactly what's happening when she's not sleeping, but we know she's not getting out of bed. Uh, we know it because that's what we ask a, a person to uh, log on this sleep diary. As you can see, the patient is asked to uh, mark uh, when they uh, drink alcohol with an A, when they take any medication with an M, when they uh, drink caffeine or any caffeinated drink with a C, and uh, when they go to bed with a line, when they get out of bed in a with a line. Uh, we can already see that occasional alcohol really is every night a little sip or maybe more than a little sip uh, which already tells us that this will be an issue and uh, when we query about the medication because she did not um, disclose initially that she takes anything it turned out to be Xanax. So it's really worth to uh, collect all this information. There's very little caffeine and there's really no exercise so this lady does not uh, uh, exercise much. What are we going to do? Well, first we have to get that sleep efficiency under control. And to do that, we need to make sure that uh, Mrs. Soleil buys into the model. So we need to return to some of the education, especially how much she can expect herself to sleep. And we're using the sleep foundation uh, recommendations that are coming out usually every 10 years. This is uh, the one that we're using currently. And we're looking at the lowest uh, row here for older adults, uh, 65 and older. So we can see that um, it is recommended not to sleep above nine hours and not to sleep below five hours. So she's with her four hours, that's, that's, that's not enough. Uh, we have to acknowledge that, but she's not that far. Uh, maybe we can get her to five or six hours uh, a night. So we come back to our sleep diary and we start negotiating. Can we uh, uh, basically shorten your time in bed? And the way we do it, we start uh, 
discussing with a patient, when do you think you could be up in the morning? Well, with Mrs. Luna Soleil, she agrees to 6 a.m. And then we count backwards to the morning, really five hours that would land us, you know, at 1 a.m. Um, so we have to negotiate with her some more. She's an elderly patient. We don't want to exhaust her. So we are going to deviate from the manual and give her a little bit more time in bed. We're going to gently uh, restrict her sleep. Well, after two weeks, she's coming back. And as you can see, she really took uh, the recommendations to heart. Uh, her average sleep increased just a notch, not much. Uh, but her sleep efficiency is now one that we can actually work with. Interestingly, even though she does not sleep much more, she is much more happy with her sleep. She also decided not to drink alcohol, even though I never challenge it directly. Um, I only educate what happens. Like, you know, it's, of course it's easier to fall asleep, but uh, your sleep will be more fragmented, but that's all right if that's your choice. It's always a choice of the patient with CBTI. And I also did not challenge the Xanax. I'm not prescribing, so I, uh, you know, I don't have uh, here uh, much of an authority, but I did educate her what it might do to her in uh, later. So not only she has uh, decided to, she decided to uh, restrict her sleep, she improved her sleep efficiency, he ch she changed her habits. And also, if you can see, she introduced two naps. So she did get the message that uh, it's okay for an elderly person to actually sleep during the day. You have to realize that she came with this narrative that she never ever takes naps. And that narrative came from previous uh, sleep hygiene recommendations. Uh, so for her to actually attempt to take a nap when I recommended that if she's tired, she actually rest and she fell asleep, it's a very good um, uh, sign. And two weeks later, uh, each, each week on our, uh, on our um, screen represents two weeks really. Uh, I just wanna make sure that you are aware of that. Uh, she now sleeps 6.3 hours in a 24-hour period. 5.5 5 .5 of these hours happen at night, and she actually takes a one-hour nap in the afternoon. It's a long nap, but again, after 65, I think that's perfectly appropriate. Her sleep efficiency right now is 85%. It's good. Her brain gets the cues uh, that when she's in bed horizontally, this is time to sleep. And as you can see, she gets up in the middle of the night and engages in some activities. She basically doesn't try to sleep. So we call her sleep a two-phasic sleep. Um, she basically will organize her drawers, you know, make um, Christmas lists, uh, grocery lists, uh, kind of bustle and, 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 and keep herself busy. Uh, so this is where we start working also on beliefs about sleep uh, or we're done. It depends. It depends on the patient. Uh, please note that uh, it doesn't work for everybody, right? We said that it works between 70 to 80% of the time. And if it doesn't work, uh, we turn to other modalities and I will ask Dr. Chen to take us further. Great, well, thank you for that, Dr. Rampala. So, I will be discussing our 
other option, not necessarily always other, could be a junctive option as well, and that would be our pharmacological or medical or medication-based treatments. Uh, clearly, there should be a second-line intervention uh, um, with the uh, behavioral and CBTI, BBTI interventions as our first and primary thought uh, for treatment, and uh, ideally isn't just the only treatment, meaning that we're not just infinitely continuing medications to manage insomnia. Um, we're always wanting to try to address any behavioral uh, or under, underlying kind of causes um, uh, that might be impacting or contributing to the insomnia. So these are our targets uh, uh, for um, pharmacological interventions. Uh, this is histamine, melatonin, uh, GABA, and orexin. Uh, and uh, that's probably the best way to kind of conceptualize the medications that are currently FDA approved for insomnia. And we'll talk about these in individual um, portions. So histamine. Uh, histamine uh, is a target, uh, and there's currently one medication that is FDA approved for uh, um, insomnia that falls in this category, and that would be doxepin. Uh, it's an actually an older tricyclic antidepressant uh, that uh, would have serotonergic or serotonin effects, um, but at low doses that are used and indicated for uh, insomnia, it is a selective H1 antagonist or antihistamine you can, you can think of. Um, this dosage would be in the 3 to 6 milligram range, which is a lot lower than used for um, depression. Uh, and uh, in studies, it shows that it's improved sleep for, for um, ranging from 25 to 38 minutes of total sleep time. Uh, to summarize its, its pros or its, its, uh, its potential benefit effects uh, uh, is that, uh, but also it is a not, it's not a controlled substance, so it's not a DEA-scheduled medication, so uh, there is less abuse potential. Uh, but in terms of the cons, um, it is a TCA or a, a, an older antidepressant, so we do have those classic concerns re regarding anticholinergic effects, uh, potentially QT uh, prolongation. Um, however, given that we're using much lower doses, um, those concerns are, are, are mitigated somewhat. Melatonin. Uh, Ramaltion is a uh, melatonin receptor agonist that's six, six to ten times more potent than melatonin supplements that you can get uh, over the counter uh, and uh, has also been indicated and approved for insomnia. Uh, the dosage is pretty straightforward, just eight milligrams, uh, and that has shown to improve sleep latency uh, f about three, about 4.6 minutes um, and improve uh, total sleep time uh, about seven minutes or so. Uh, um, pros for this medication is it's also not controlled, so again, reduced uh, abuse potential. Uh, the cons would be um, cost, uh, at least at present. Um, it is a patented medication. Um, insurance coverages we have found to be quite limited. Uh, and as you can see, the, the effect size is, is a bit small, and we do see this clinically that um, uh, patients um, maybe don't feel a dramatic effect from it. Moving on to the GABA system, uh, we have benzodiazepine receptor agonists, uh, or the BZRAs, um, and there's basically two major groups here um, we're, we're, we're thinking about, which are, as the name would imply, benzodiazepines, um, but more commonly the non-benzodiazepines 
benzodiazepine receptor agonists. Um, it's a mouthful, but uh, essentially uh, they, um, they bind to the same site, but they're structurally different from the benzodiazepines. And you can see here, this is an uh, a, um, illustration of the GABA-A receptor, uh, which um, uh, primarily ma modulates GABA. And these uh, bind to a separate site, so they, a, they are a positive allosteric modulator of the, uh, the GABA system, uh, so they uh, in essentially increase um, GABA's functioning um, at that site. And GABA um, uh, essentially promotes sleep. Uh, much of that I described uh, here, but here's a sort of a vertical look there, and you can see that um, uh, GABA binds there, uh, uh, but the benzodiazepine site is a separate site. Um, previously mentioned barbiturates have a separate site as well. Um, alcohol um, also has its own separate site, so those are all um, allosteric uh, modulators of, um, of the GABA-A receptor. So amongst the non-benzodiazepines, colloquially known as the Z drugs, um, is Zolpidem, um, S-Zopaclone, and Zeloplon. So their function is quite similar, uh, but the main difference here is in their, uh, their half-life. Um, uh, um, so they're all positive allosteric modulators. Uh, Zolpidem is in the middle with an intermediate half-life of 1.5 to 4.5 hours. Uh, the typical dosage of regular Zolpidem is between 5 and 10 milligrams. Uh, lower doses um, recommended for uh, the elderly and for women. Uh, it comes in tablets, uh, just regular tablet, uh, controlled release, um, and uh, newer is a sublingual and oral spray form, uh, which is just trying to uh, accelerate the delivery. Uh, uh, studies have shown that it improves total sleep time for about uh, 29 minutes, uh, but there are some concerns here with this medication, um, uh, and that's complex sleep behaviors has, has earned a black box warning. Uh, so that would be um, some ambulism or sleepwalking, um, sleep driving, sleep eating behaviors uh, have, has been strongly associated with Zolpidem, uh, and uh, there are concerns in the elderly. Um, so it is considered a high-risk medication uh, per, uh, per the um, Beer's criteria, um, uh, um, uh, which is the geriatric uh, society. Uh, it is a controlled substance, so it's a Schedule Four medication. Uh, so there's also concerns about uh, dependency, tolerance, uh, and there is some uh, abuse potential as well. Zopaclone. Uh, um, interestingly, um, uh, Zopaclone is, uh, is available outside of the U.S., but Zopaclone is the S enantiomer of this uh, medication. Uh, it has a longer half-life, um, so that distinguishes it from um, Zolpidem. <clears throat> the dosage range uh, for this medication is between 1 to 3 medi uh, milligrams. Um, and because it has that longer uh, half-life, uh, it may be better for sleep maintenance uh, uh, complaints. Um, there's a, there's a re recent meta-analysis that might have shown that it may be a little bit better than the other um, uh, approved uh, sleep medications uh, um, and in terms of negative effects would be uh, potential complex uh, sleep behaviors just like um, Zolpidem, uh, um, uh, again high risk medication for the elderly uh, and is also a um, controlled substance uh, schedule 4. 
Celeplon um, has the shortest of, uh, of half-lives within this family. Uh, its dosage range is, is between 5 and 20 milligrams. Uh, it reduced sleep latency for, for about uh, t uh, 10 minutes. Um, uh, but uh, where it's really found a role is in this idea of the middle of the night awakening uh, for folks that wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep. Uh, given that it has a shorter half-life, the hope is that uh, you can take it in the middle of the night and uh, as long as you have, uh, remaining four hours or, or a few hours to sleep, uh, it should be mainly out of your system and not affect your next day functioning. Uh, but the same concerns uh, amongst the class remain about uh, complex sleep behaviors, uh, um, the medication in the elderly, and uh, being a controlled substance as well. So the, uh, the older benzodiazepines have really fallen out of favor as a first-line treatment for uh, in, uh, insomnia. Um, and these are the ones that are currently approved, include uh, estalazam, florazepam, quazepam, um, temazepam, and triazolam, all the lambs and pams. Uh, um, uh, and really, that's out of concern of uh, kind of safety and side effects uh, um, has been associated uh, with, um, well, actually, let me see. I think I have some information here. Yeah. Uh, uh, really, the concern here is, is again, the side effects. Um, uh, they tend to have longer half-lives, uh, in some cases up to 160 hours. Uh, um, so the concern there is the risk of cumulative effects. So if it's not out of the system within a day, you take an additional dose so it can uh, build up in the system. Uh, and that's particularly risky with um, the elderly in terms of confusion, falls, uh, um, cognitive effects. Uh, there's also risk with opioids of um, um, potentiating respiratory depression. Uh, uh, there's um, at least theoretically a higher concern about dependence, uh, addiction, and withdrawal uh, with the benzodiazepines um, uh, than the other, uh, the non-benzodiazepine uh, receptor agonists. Uh, um, the mechanism is, is, is similar, being a pos positive allosteric modulator, it has that, uh, that separate site as well. So dual orexin receptor agonists are the newest kind of kid on the block. Uh, um, orexin, uh, which is illustrated here, is actually um, a neurochemical that is uh, implicated in narcolepsy. Um, uh, so this has been a new target area for uh, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, um, and there's currently three medications that are approved uh, for um, a treatment of insomnia. Suvorexin was the first one approved. Uh, uh, it's an antagonist at the orexin receptors, essentially decreasing the uh, orexin effect. Orexin is a wakefulness-promoting uh, uh, um, neurochemical. Uh, so uh, the idea here is to decrease wake wakefulness. Uh, the dosage range is between 10 and 20 milligrams. Currently, we think it has lower abuse potential, but uh, it is a newer medication, so, um, so uh, we'll see over time. Uh, the other pro for this medication, it's, it's a different target. Um, everything else kind of most commonly would, would have been targeting the GABA system. Uh, so this is um, looking at orexin, which is a, which is a new mechanism uh, overall. Uh, it's contraindicated in narcolepsy, contraindicated in narcolepsy. Uh, as mentioned, um, uh, erection is already low in narcolepsy, so this will pr uh, promote or um, uh, exacerbate um, the REM intrusion symptoms that come with narcolepsy, including cataplexy. It is still a controlled substance, so we're still dealing with that. Uh, and it also has been associated with complex uh, sleep behaviors. Uh, cost becomes an issue here, being a newer medication. Uh, um, uh, uh, it can be a little bit more expensive, um, and it's uh, currently still on patent, I believe. 
Lembarexin is a newer uh, uh, version, uh, dosages between 5 and 10 milligrams. Uh, um, there was one uh, um, comparative study that did show improved sleep onset and maintenance versus Zolpidem. Uh, and um, the difference here would be that they're looking at older adults uh, um, with Lambarexin uh, and with the next medication as well. Uh, there's thought to be less risk of withdrawal or rebound. Um, again, similarly, uh, uh, we want to be cautious in folks that do have narcolepsy, uh, still a controlled substance, and um, costs may be a factor as well. Doritorexin is the newest, uh, which is um, uh, the dosage range of 25 to 50 milligrams. Uh, it does have data for this, this older adult population, which is, a, again, a challenging population to, uh, to treat, uh, particularly with medication concerns. Uh, same similar um, worries in terms of narcolepsy, controlled substance, and um, complex sleep behaviors. So that currently is uh, our options for treatment. Uh, um, a quick summary, we have you know, insomnia disorder is obviously very common as most people probably have has encountered in clinical practice, um, has a lot of connections, contributing factors, uh, um, uh, but we do have some treatment options. Uh, um, uh, really behavioral therapies are our first thought and, and, and really our most effective, um, but there's some pharmacological treatments that we can consider as well um, as either second line or even adjunctive um, treatment. Uh, in certain situations. Great, thank you so much. That was so helpful. And Helena, thank you so much for going through the different kind of um, aspects of the behavioral health, um, because honestly, I had no idea it was so involved, but that was really helpful to hear. Now, Lawrence, um, I think both of you have alluded that sleep changes with age. What are the natural sleep changes that you can expect as a person ages? Yeah, so we, we generally see a decrease in total sleep time. Uh, we see an increase in um, what is known as WASO or wake after sleep onset. Uh, and unfortunately, we also see a decrease in uh, N3 sleep or slow wave sleep, which is classically thought of as our kind of reparative or restorative sleep or what people will subjectively experience as kind of deeper sleep. Uh, and because of that, uh, you know, we, we do see those changes naturally, um, but it's often a challenge to distinguish that from insomnia itself. Uh, um, some things I can hint to that would be, is this kind of a gradual thing that occurred or something that happened more acutely due to some stressor? Uh, and then we also looked at um, the impact on, their on the patient's daily function. Mm -hmm. So if they're still functioning okay, um, then that might indicate that this is just a natural process of aging. But if it's really starting to affect the way they, um, they, they're able to um, do their daily activities, then we're thinking that this may be more of a disorder. Okay, so not all old people have insomnia then. <laughs> That, that is true. Okay. Um, now, should all patients with insomnia be evaluated for disorders like OSA and parasomnias? Um, I do think that is that is a uh, that would be a um, a wise thing to do. Uh, certainly, we do have effective treatments for um, uh, sleep apnea, for parasomnias, and for um, things like restless legs. Uh, and sometimes those are um, a little bit easier to treat than insomnia itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's worthwhile doing, um, at least from a screening screening perspective. Um, just you know, asking about things like snoring, uh, uh, apneic episodes, um, unusual movements at night, um, mm -hmm. or bothersome leg movement uh, symptoms. Okay, and Helena, how long does it usually take before you start seeing the benefits of CBT? Is that pretty early on in your sessions or more towards the 10, 12 week mark? It's pretty early on. Okay, it, great. You know, majority of patients will, will respond within four weeks. So mm -hmm. the first two, they're kind of collecting data, but they already know what they're 
are maybe supposed to do, kind, kind of how to challenge themselves. The next two weeks they implement the first sleep prescription or restriction. And then the following weeks are really about sleep titration and addressing maladaptive cognitions, uh, you know, agitation, mm -hmm. anxiety. Perfect. And then I know you spoke very briefly about sleep hygiene in regards mm -hmm. to ADHD. That is definitely something that I feel like we've talked about a lot in my training. How important is sleep hygiene? I think it's very important. Uh, and what is even more important is to make sure that we don't have one generic you know, sheet of paper that we distribute or handout that we distribute to patients, but that we actually tailor uh, the sleep hygiene recommendations to different populations. Mm -hmm. uh, so very important, very effective, as long as it actually uh, is accurate. Okay. <laughs> and Lawrence, you know, I noticed you didn't mention some of the most common medications I see patients on, including, you know, over-the-counter melatonin or over-the-counter sleep aids, or even some off-label medications like trazodone or other TCAs. Do you recommend some of those other things? Uh, so, um, for the purposes of this talk, I really focused on the uh, FDA-approved medications. Uh, certainly, um, some of those other agents that you mentioned are commonly used. Um, I think uh, my goal today was to, uh, uh, you know, highlight the ones that have been approved so uh, clinicians know that there are options. Um, but certainly, uh, for folks that uh, don't do well on uh, the medications that are available or that uh, um, uh, need additional options, you know, those, those are things that are, uh, are considered. And I think particularly the um, a, a nice optimal role would be if they have um, uh, the medical conditions that those medications do have indications for, uh, along with in insomnia, um, it's a nice efficient way to reduce polypharmacy by using a medication that may uh, treat both. So for instance, trazodone, um, you know, things like amitriptyline are commonly used as well. Those have indications for depression. So for folks that do have depression, uh, you may be able to um, uh, treat both uh, simultaneously with the same medication. Mm -hmm. And you know, I noticed a lot of the medicines that you described can only extend sleep by about 30 minutes. Is that really meaningful or worthwhile? Yeah, that's, that is an um, obvious and uh, uh, limitation of our medications. And that's something that I, I clearly discuss with the patients when we're um, considering medications. Uh, and in fact, I use that as a, uh, as a, uh, as a talking point to uh, encourage that um, we, uh, you know, we consider behavioral uh, uh, treatments as a first line uh, because of the uh, limited effect size from the medications. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our presenters. Lawrence? Yeah, so, uh, so obviously insomnia is, is, is uh, everywhere. Uh, um, uh, I think it's important to know that we do have some effective treatments. Uh, I uh, personally feel that uh, the behavioral treatments are our first line and, and, and patients do best with that. Uh, but there are also some uh, medication options that, that could be considered, uh, but we want to be cautious with that um, regarding the uh, concerns about side effects. And Helena? Uh, when you find yourself having sleep difficulties, uh, educate yourself, find somebody that knows uh, what sleep is like, what uh, governs sleep. Uh, just don't try not to be anxious, more seek information. Anxiety and, and sleep do not mix. We have lots of good, good information as you can see and with some simple behavioral um, steps you can probably avoid developing insomnia itself. Thanks so much for joining us today. For our audience, Please check out our website at ccme.osu.edu to take our post-tests and claim those CME credits and ABIM MOC points. 
Please join us next week when my guest cardiologists, Dr. Jim Liu and Dr. Sal Savona discuss atrial fibrillation overview and updates. That's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and farewell until next time.